Welcome everyone to the Dining on a Dime podcast, where we give you tips on how to save on your monthly food budget. Now we give you the absolute best foodie news, and our professionals will give you recipes and cooking tips. So let's get the show started. All right, welcome to Dining on a Dime. We have an action-packed show for you today. Uh, in the beginning of the show, we're going to have Nina from Bobo Link Dairy and Bakehouse in Milford, New Jersey. If you're listening to us around the world, we will be talking a lot about dairy farms and bakehouse uh, in, a, in the bakers. After that, we have an excellent interview with Courtney. She is the Southeast Regional Rep for St. Germain and Elderflower Liquor. And then we're going to end this exciting show with one of the hottest trends going today. They are plant-based diets. And we're going to give you our expert input on plant-based diets. Let's start it off with Chef Gene. Chef? Well, welcome, everybody, and welcome, Nina, from Bobolink Farms. So by way of introduction, uh, a little bit about Bobolink Farms. They are a farm in Milford, New Jersey, which is around the Frenchtown area, that specializes in raw milk cheeses that come from a grass-fed, no-supplemented dairy herd. They also have a absolutely fabulous bakehouse with incredible artisanal breads. And then they also do some meat production and they bring in some meats from small artisanal butchers in the area. So welcome Nina and uh, glad to have you with us and tell a little bit about your story. And I think um, the first question that we're going to ask is that I know that you are a choreographer and your and Jonathan is a software engineer. That's right. So, uh, as a dancer uh, who needed excellent nutrition to fuel the instrument, I began cooking for myself on a low budget. So I learned to make food from scratch, from its simple elements, including making my own yogurt, making my own ricotta cheese and making uh, hummus and tabbouleh and all from the raw ingredients. Jonathan on the other side of the Hudson River from me as a uh, software engineer and an engineering student at Stevens Tech did pretty much the same thing. So when we met in Greenwich Village in the early 80s, the conversation was you bake your own bread, so do I. You make yogurt on your tenement stove in a bain-marie, me too. So uh, it was a match made in heaven, still happily together after all these years, and making wonderful food using sunshine and rain. Well, I was just up there over the weekend, and I purchased some of your fabulous breads that were gone in no time at all at my home, and we're actually sitting here, and we have a couple of your cheeses in front of us that we're going to be enjoying. But one of the really you know, things that, that I saw with uh, Jonathan and your hands up there is the care and the love put into the herd and how you milk them once a day. You know, they're grass-fed. Uh, so many dairies today milk twice a day. They try to really get the most out of it, but it's not necessarily healthy for the animals. So tell us a little bit about what makes your farming style so unique and how that impacts your cheeses and your products. 
So everything is about nature and regenerating our property and therefore the nature, wild animals, birds, bugs in our environment to regenerate a natural ecosystem. And when we started back in 2002, we realized that the dairy industry and particularly the cow dairy industry was going in the wrong direction, breeding the cows to make more and more milk that they couldn't survive in a natural setting. So we started to crossbreed our small dairy breeds, our small low producing Ayrshire's, milking shorthorns, Guernseys, and those are dairy breeds, but we wanted small low producing cows so that they were smart and strong and resilient. And we crossed them with the ancient Kerry cow from Ireland. And in that way, we were able to create a very sturdy grazing animal that can calve easily until the age of 27, 28, 29, where a typical production cow will exceed her production, excuse me, she will, her cost will exceed her productivity by the time she's four and she'll be sold for hamburger. We do not want to participate in that at all. And I'm going to make a little bit of correction that all of the meat on our farm is from animals raised here. We are trying to promote the idea of eat your view. So everything that we harvest is raised here, born in the field, living in the field, and a very, very short ride to a very quick end, which is how I want to go personally. But be that as it may, we've really devoted ourselves to having the ecology, the health of the animals lead the way to the raw materials for our products. And therefore our products are the most tasty, and healthy for the consumers. Well, I would certainly agree with your cheeses. They're absolutely fabulous. Your breads are the same. I have to give you a compliment. My youngest daughter, uh, who is a freshman in college, is a vegetarian. And when she did some reading up on your farm, she was very excited that I was bringing you on air and going to talk about your products because she felt so positive about the products that you were dealing with and, and how you farm and the processes you do there. So let's move on a little bit because I had an opportunity to talk to your master baker while I was there the other day. Tell me about the breads. What sets your artisanal breads aside? I, you know, you had such a great assortment and I had uh, two of them that I purchased that are, they were gone by Sunday. It was absolutely, you know, wonderful experience, but what sets your breads aside? So my goals in the bakery are pretty much the same as our goals in the animal husbandry, which is to start with raw materials that are grown in harmony with nature. And so I joke, it's no joke, that our bakery is setting the standard back to what it was 200 years ago and previous. So we're purchasing our grains themselves from growers who are using old style either heritage heirloom seeds or heritage types. And because the genetics of the grains that we're buying are easily grown 
in a, a, either an organic or a sustainable regenerative manner. They're not high production. They do not require chemicals to survive. They are different from season to season. And that's really the definition of artisanal or artisan food is when you take what nature produces and then you find a way to coax it into its true form. So in the bakery, I begin with an experiment of how moist the dough needs to be, how long that particular grain needs to realize its full flavor and nutrition. And so I've developed these recipes over many years, letting the raw materials that I can get dictate what I try next. We also use a starter that we began with a bottle of Saison Dupont Belgian Ale back in 2003. And that is a sourdough idea, but because it is an ale-based starter, it has a lot of really delicious yeasts that work together to slowly develop the flavor of the bread in either one or two day fermentation before it's even baked. That's a long process. That's a very long process. Something that, you know, very few bakers were even willing to look at or take on today. So I certainly applaud you in that. And it, the quality is just magnificent. Uh, to, diverse, to divert a little bit away from that, because I think it's very important. Can you tell our listeners where the name Bobolink came from? Because I think it's very relevant to everything that you do, what Bobolink is. Yes. Yeah, so the Bobolink or Bobolink bird is a field nesting bird. It nests and fledges, fledges in Argentina and then migrates to the north where it nests and fledges again. So they have two nesting and fledging periods. They nest in grasslands and they have been endangered over the last generations because of the lack of grassland availability. With high production agriculture, all the grasses and fields are cut, cut, cut. There's no place for those birds to have a safe nesting area. When we first visited our previous farm that we had rented in northern New Jersey, there were bobolinks on that farm. And it inspired Jonathan to name our business bobolink because it is a symbol of a balanced natural setting where the cows can graze and they will respect the bobolink's nest and we let the grasses have their natural process so that there is a place for the wildlife to have their life cycles as well. And we're very, very proud of the fact that in our first year here on this new, our new property, which is since 2010, so it's relatively new as well, the first year we heard one or two bobolinks. The next year we heard a little bit more of a, a chorus that sounds like this. Well, let me wet my whistle. That's the sound of the bobolink. And by season three, we saw flocks of them. And we now are on the bobolink world map. And we have quite a number, hundreds of birds on our fields coming up very soon. And we're hoping that we can, with social distancing in place, have a bird walk to see the bobolink. So when you go to our website, cowsoutside.com, you'll be able to see a link to sign up for that. We'll have that in place in the next few weeks. 
So about that, I know that in addition to the bird watch you're talking about, you pre-COVID were doing great cooking classes and such, really you know educating people in bread making and in the artisanal style that you do. So it's really wonderful. One of the other things I really want to point out to people in the Bucks County, New Jersey area, Philadelphia area even, that where they are located is an absolutely fabulous drive up along the river from New Hope up to French, um, up to uh, Frenchville across the bridge. You can go, it's just an absolutely beautiful day from, you know, Ben Salem area. It's about 45 minutes. I made it the other day in 40 minutes and it's just such a beautiful drive on a Saturday morning to be rewarded with great cheeses, great breads, be outside, you know, see the the herd coming in from milking. So if you're in the area, please, I encourage you to look them up and do a little traveling. So what has 2020 and into 2021 and COVID meant for you out at the farm? Well, the COVID experience for us has been kind of opposite to many, many folks in that we got very busy very quickly. And we were very pleased to be able to provide good food for people to pick up curbside. We already had a website in place, so it became more important for me to keep my inventory up to date very uh, time in a very timely way so that I didn't sell someone something that wasn't available. We did have a bit of a challenge with staffing because some of our staff did feel that they didn't want to be putting themselves at risk and that was quite understandable. Uh, and then we were able to put safety measures for ourselves in place very, very quickly, very, very well, wearing masks. Uh, we always wash our hands. We always keep a very clean situation. So that was nothing new for us. And we simply had to stop sampling, which is sad, but uh, it got us uh, into a more efficient mode. We did also reduce the number of farmers markets that we do to be more efficient with our time. And um, we feel much more valued by the public, especially as the meat infrastructure, food infrastructure, and even the availability of flour became problematic in the supermarket realm, we happily started bagging flour for people to use at home because we get it in 50 pound bags. We always have plenty on hand. And uh, so we were able to be flexible and pivot, as they say, to provide people things that they needed at this time. So um, we're going to have two concerts on our lawn again this year. We decided to go ahead and do that last year. I spray painted squares on the lawn, mask off in the middle of your square, mask back on when you go to buy your food. No cases reported. Uh, we kept everyone safe, sound, and happy. And uh, we'll do it again. And I can find that information on your website because I'm very interested. Yeah, so our first concert is going to be on May 30th. It's already available at shop.cowsoutside.com. I will uh, share the link with you so you can have it. Uh, and then we'll be doing another concert that I haven't posted yet because I'm just confirming the time of day with my artists. But uh, that's scheduled. Uh, the first concert is K 
Celtic music by Nibora. They're a lot of fun. And I think at $10 for a music charge is a really great day out. And we'll be selling our own way-fed pork, burgers, and other things that'll be coming out of the garden or the farmer's market by that time. Sounds like It'll a, be fun. Sounds like a lot of fun. We're going to pivot a moment and talk about something that's very near and dear to my heart, and that is a fabulous project you started called Circle Haven. And I'm going to stay away from explaining what Circle Haven is because I want to make sure that the message of it and what you're doing with it gets across to everybody. So if you could talk to us a little bit about Circle Haven. Thank you. So I founded Circle Haven with other families that have loved ones who have cognitive challenges. In other words, they're physically capable, but um, have challenges in um, speech, language, uh, sequencing, and something called executive function, our ability to make a list and follow the list and stay on track. There are many people who have um, a very high intelligence level and do have a lot of problems with planning and follow through that is life changing, that they are capable of some facets of life and probably won't learn to fully care for themselves and be independent through their whole life. And so we have founded an organization that will be building a residential program for them to live with different levels of support commensurate with their needs from very, very high needs, such as our son, Jacob, who at 28 years old functions kind of like a three-year-old. Uh, and his speech is very limited and his capabilities are very limited. And he also can be self-injurious, which requires a very, very special kind of staffing. Part of what's going to make it feasible to have care for him and what Circle Haven is planning to do is to value very highly our direct support professionals, the people who take care of our loved ones every day. And we want to have direct support professionals for adults be a highly valued and respected career path where people can support their families doing this very, very important work. Additionally, we'll be having activities such as a greenhouse, outdoor engagement and crafts and the arts as part of both the recreational and the vocational training and enrichment for our loved ones who live there and other people in the community who would like access to that type of programming. So we're very excited. And our website is circlehaven.org where you can learn more. Now, <clears throat> Nina, the, uh, hi, I'm Amaris. Um, I'm one of the co-hosts and, you know, I want to, I want to know how would individuals or families that have somebody with a, you know, a special needs child with autism be able to find you and reach out outside of just your website? Do you, you know, reach out to schools to let them know just in case, or um, how would, how would you in essence, recruit people um, who who are looking to have this program available. Right. So thank you for that question. And we're a brand new organization. We're only two years old. We haven't even broken ground yet. We actually haven't even purchased our property yet. We're in 
the throes of acquiring a property. We do have all, already our designs and our approvals, but it's a very big and long process. So this is the frustrating part. Right now, you can email info at circlehaven.org and get on the list. Uh, we will hopefully in the first iteration of our replicable model, we will have places for 26 adults. And it's not limited to autism. It can be from uh, acquired brain injury or uh, other disorders that affect cognitive function. Um, and it's frustrating because you don't want to hear again, please you know, write to us and we'll put you on the list. But that's the point that, that we're on right now. Uh, and that doesn't make any of those loved ones any less valuable to our organization, but we're really just starting. But we do want to uh, know who we uh, can serve as we go forward, even if it's just to prove to the state that we need more funding <laughs> to get it going. Um, so I wanted to also ask you, I'm going to bounce back to the beginning of uh, when you came on. Uh, you had said that you make ricotta cheese. Oh, not at Bobolink. So that was in my home kitchen long, long ago when I was a poor starving dancer. Um, and here's the thing. We are very, very committed to making 100% grass-fed raw cow's milk cheese. We believe that a, a diet that includes fermented foods that have beneficial microbes found in raw milk, that can be found in kimchi, that can be found in live beer, sauerkraut, pickles, all those things that are fermented foods are very, very important in the human diet. And many, many of the uh, food sensitivities that people have developed over the years are because of the absence of beneficial microbes in their diets. So that's a given. Beneficial microbes, very important. The laws in the United States for raw milk cheese dictate currently that those cheeses must be aged for 60 days or longer in order to be legal for sale. Hmm. Now, I know there are states that have raw milk sales legal. New Jersey is not one of them. That's a whole nother story. But ricotta cheese is a fresh milk cheese. If I were to make raw milk ricotta and sell it, yeah, I would be put in jail or shut down. <laughs> and I don't want you to do that. I really don't. It's not my idea. No, we, are, <laughs> we like you making cheeses way too much. <laughs> I so know. We want to make a really wonderful ricotta. And by the way, the best way to make ricotta, real quick, take some milk. You heat it to 185 degrees. Therefore, it is pasteurized, so it's not raw. But we just, you know, it's, it's hard to do this economically on a, on a large, small scale. Buy a quart of our 100% grass-fed that pasteurized, non-homogenized milk from our colleagues in Pennsylvania. Buy a quart of that. Heat it to 185 degrees till it's steaming. Stir that. Stir it, stir it, stir it while putting in about two tablespoons of white vinegar. It's going to coagulate or the globs of protein are going to stick together. And you get curds and whey just like little Miss Muffet had. <laughs> and then you can drain that. And what stays in your colander or sieve is going to be your ricotta cheese, delicious. And then you keep that water and start some bread with it instead of water. I, I, people do not understand the value of saving the way 
for things like bread and you know so many so much today in the commercial process that way goes on to bodybuilding supplements and things like that so while we're talking about your cheeses we're going to try two of them we're going to start off with uh, a wonderful the uh, botolino that i purchased the other day which my chefs were raving about today when i dug into another piece that i had there so it's very creamy. That, yeah, very creamy. Very very good. It, it it tastes like I'm I'm eating something right out of the grasses, right out of the fields. It's very earthy. It's a really wonderful flavor. I agree. It reminds me. It almost reminds me a little bit of like an extra creamy brie, like it's extremely creamy. <laughs> well, and I want to point something out. Very interesting. First of all, that is the cheese that they said was impossible. A soft ripened cheese that is raw legal for sale in the United States. And the Bordolino that we're currently selling is made in October, November. And ordinarily when you make a cheese that's that soft, it's going to be ready to eat at like six weeks and just running off your plate. And we were able to create a methodology and that's the beauty of having my engineer husband making the cheese is he was able to create something like that that just keeps getting better with age. The other point about it is that creaminess and that full flavor is from milk only. That is not a triple crown. That has no added cream. That is the milk, exactly how it comes out of the cow. So it's not fattening. Isn't that a nice thing? Yeah, it is. And, and it tastes it's good for your hair. It's good for your eyes. And it tastes wonderful. I actually am, you know, as I'm eating it, I'm I'm like already thinking, oh, I could do like caramelized onions and like over like a nice bread that's like a rustic bread and, you know, toast it and drizzle, mm -hmm. you know, drizzle some EVOO over that. And mm -hmm. yeah, it's also really lovely in the winter is when I allow myself to eat non-local fruit. And so I've been really enjoying the Baudolino with like figs and uh, dried Turkish apricots uh, sour cherries. So there are a lot of possibilities with that pairing. The next cheese that we have here is, uh, I, I just like it because uh, the Jean-Louis is, it, it is Jean-Louis is a tribute to one of the great chefs of all time. So, you know, I love that you did that. And I had some of this earlier and it's actually my favorite cheese that I've had from your property. And it's, I'm, I already ate it because I was like, I need this now. Um, <laughs> and it's, it has so much flavor in it. Um, what did you make it with? Milk. <laughs> I mean, beyond milk. <laughs> milk. So that's the thing. When the cows graze, the beauty of the grasses and the health of our environment creates a grassy, sweet tasting milk. And then as we allow that milk to ferment in our cheese vat, so, you know, seven o'clock in the morning, eight o'clock in the morning, we bring the cows down the hill and we milk them in a walk-through milking parlor and the milk goes, you know, through the vacuum pump. It's, we don't hand milk that gal. We put some vacuum uh, cups over her teats and that sucks the milk up into a hose, through a pipe, through the wall, directly into the cheese vat, where we keep that milk at cow-ish temperature around 95 degrees. And all the good bacteria in that milk start to eat the milk sugars. 
and it's a fermentation process. So they're eating the lactose and acidifying the milk. So it goes from tasting like a sweet, clovery, little bit of rennet that makes the solids stick together, like just like I talked before about the vinegar making the uh, ricotta stick together. We use rennet because we need a firmer curd. We need the curds and whey to be firmer. That's eventually ladled into a huge, huge mold. The Jean-Louis mold is about 15 inches wide by uh, about two feet high. And those curds eventually sink down and solidify again into a 20 pound cheese. Started at 95 degrees. After a day, it's still warm in the middle and we still have fermentation and that makes that big, bold flavor. Plus another six months of aging with our wonderful, wonderful fermentation and all those good bacteria making such a complex matrix of flavor. And did you notice there's no negative aftertaste? Was, so often on industrial cheese, you'll get a lot of wonderful flavor. And then at the last minute, oh my gosh, my throat is burning. Or you just feel like you've been knocked in the back of the head. Our cheeses get a really wide arc of flavor, like a wine almost. You know, it's a, an initial flavor, a secondary flavor, and a clean finish. We get a clean finish on a very, very tasty cheese because of the purity of our process. Well, my dinner this evening is going to be the remainder of these cheeses and a good bottle of wine. And I'm trying to figure out what wine I want to pair them with, but I have several ideas. So as we wind down... Tell our listeners how they can find out more about the farm and the dairy. Well, as uh, as we have had for many, many years, our website is cowsoutside.com. That's many, many cows eating grass outside, <laughs> cowsoutside.com. And there are links to our farmer's market schedule, our online farm store. I have a media page where if you want to see videos of the cows, you can go to my YouTube channel. And uh, I, I spend as much time as I can on keeping us up to date uh, with information. And you can always join my e-list through the main page of cowsoutside.com. I send out an email once a week with what we've got. This week, we're just about to put, I just I just got a text message that the guanciale is ready to put online. So the, the freshly sliced guanciale from our own way-fed pigs is ready to come and get for your Easter cooking. And uh, join my e-list. I'll write you once a week. I won't sell you to anyone else. And I promise some cute calf pictures. <laughs> That's an absolute bonus. And... I'm trying to figure out how to fit that into my schedule for the next couple of days, how to get up there before it's all gone. Uh, tell us where you're located, uh, Milford, New Jersey, the address. Um, yes. We are at 369 Stamets Road, S-T-A-M-E-T-S, for the Stamets family that bought this farm in 1890. And we bought it from the Stamets family. Stamets Road, Milford, New Jersey, 08848, and Google Maps will get you there. Sorry, I don't have a sign at the corner. I'm still working with the county roads department to let me put up a sign. I'll get it done. 
It's very easy to find, and it's an absolutely beautiful drive. I really strongly suggest anybody who wants a beautiful day out in the country to take a ride up along the Delaware through Bucks County across the bridge, and you're literally about six minutes across the bridge, and you got the lovely town of Frenchtown right there if people want to stop and do a little shopping or get lunch, but make Bubblelink Farms a destination Thank you very much, Nina. I greatly appreciate it. We greatly appreciate all the wonderful information you provided our listeners. And again, Bubblelink Farms, and if people are interested in their wonderful nonprofit, which is Circle Haven, please reach out and you can get more information. I know you can get information for Circle Haven on the Bubblelink Farm, on the CowsOutside.com uh, site also. Thanks for the opportunity and eat your view. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. Let's go to break. We'll be back. We're talking liquor when we come back. Check out our new podcast, Learn About World Cuisine, where we travel to a different country from around the world each week and give you fascinating facts about both the country and the cuisine. Our world traveler gives you his real-life experience in the country, and our wine expert gives you the best wine pairings with your cuisine. Our podcast is available on all platforms, or you can simply Google Learn About World Cuisine to listen to the show. All right, we are back. Amaris Pollock, let's introduce your fantastic guest. Hi, um, I'm Amaris, and I am inviting... Miss Courtney Lane, who is the Southeastern uh, Regional Rep for St. Germain, on to talk about some cocktails made with the elderflower liqueur. Hi, everyone. Thank you so much, Aramis. It's nice to be on today um, to talk about our delicious St. Germain elderflower liqueur. Um, I, I have to say that, you know, of course, I, I snuck in a uh, cocktail because we're, you know, we're doing a little happy hour here. So uh, my my co-host, Jean, and I are cheersing right now with the St. Germain's classic uh, cocktail. If you want to tell our listeners how to make that at home, they can join us. Of course. So our signature cocktail is what we call the St. Germain Spritz. And this is made with one and a half ounces of St. Germain elderflower liqueur and then two ounces of a Prosecco or a soda or um, any any sparkling wine and then any sparkling soda water. Um, You can kind of spritz your spritz and make it your own by using like a sparkling rosé or a flavored soda water, Um, anything to really make it your own. uh, We we definitely encourage you can even throw a little bit of kombucha in there. You really just kind of customize it and make it delicious and however you'd like to enjoy it. I actually used um, for the seltzer water a watermelon lime and, you know, it added it up to the uh, the sweetness factor a little bit, but it tastes absolutely delicious. I love that. Yes. Uh, St. Germain is uh, a liqueur, so it is a bit sweet. I actually use it typically as a sugar substitute in cocktails. Um, so any cocktail that really calls for a simple syrup or anything like that, you can go ahead and trade it out for St. Germain. Um, we do make it with refined beet sugar, so it's a little bit of a healthier alternative to your average type of corn syrups or anything like that. From a bartender's perspective, and this is Gene, I, um, hello and welcome. 
I consider St. Germain like a chef looks at salt. St. Germain just brings up the flavor of any cocktail you put in it. You can have so much fun. It really is truly a bartender's friend to work with. You can I do agree. so much. I agree totally. Um, some people call it the bartender's ketchup, but I, I honestly do prefer calling it um, the salt or pepper as well. Um, I've bartended myself in Miami all over the place and in Florida as well. And it's been a, a favorite of mine on the back bar uh, far beyond my, my brand work, uh, working with St. Germain. It really is a great additive to any cocktail to really bring it to life. And, you know, we're in spring now, so it's a great way to kind of give a little bit of spring step into your cocktails and really elevate it. That is exactly what, you know, I wanted you to come on for, too, is to just, you know, elevate that spring, highlight the St. Germain's, um, Germain, and, you know, just offer up our listeners some delicious, healthy cocktail choices, you know, since everybody is being allowed out and everyone kind of gained the, the quarantine 15. So we're going to go with some healthier cocktails. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Like I said, you know, we, I use it as a sugar substitute and it is spring. So um, it's a wonderful time to go to your, you know, store, your local fresh market or farmer's market and pick out some great spring fruits. We have strawberries in season and rhubarb. You know, we have pineapples and lemons and mangoes. It's, a, it's the best time for fresh fruit. So you can just juice some of that up, throw it into a blender or in a shaking tin. Um, and really, it goes with any any spirit of your choosing. You can do gin. You can do tequila. You can do mezcal. Um, and so I usually do like one and a half to two parts of a spirit and then one ounce of St. Germain and then like three quarter of a, of a citrus and then add whatever fruits muddled in there or whatever you'd like to give a little, you know, fruit in your in your cocktail as well so you know not too guilty <laughs> i personally love and it's a drink i stole from your site and, and i enjoy it because i like scotches and bourbons but you came up with a scotch based drink and you call it the elder fashioned modeled after the old fashioned and it's simply a little scotch a little bit of angostura bitters and then some saint germain which takes the cocktail in a whole different world so for the old heads like me that you know i don't care about the spring fruity cocktails or anything like that give me something with you know that that wonderful peaty flavor the saint germain just really takes it to a new a whole new level so thank you for that i stole that from your website some time ago and absolutely love it i love that i absolutely love the elder fashion and if you do like a if you are a fan of the peak um you, and you want to try something a little bit different you can try an elder fashion but with mezcal and it, the, the fruitiness of the saint germain really brings out the smokiness of that agave and it's absolutely delicious so it's just those two ounces of of your of your mezcal and then a half ounce of saint germain it's phenomenal now, one of the things that um, drew me to the elderflower liqueur is is that I love incorporating flowers, edible flowers, into my cocktails, into salads, and, and whatnot. Um, do you have anything on hand that you might, you know, add in something like that or herbs, um, you know, to spice it up a bit? Definitely. I actually just created a cocktail recently. It was a riff on a white lady, um, which is with gin, egg whites, uh, I use St. Germain, and some lemon juice. And um, I actually shook it with some 
um, violet, edible, edible violetas, violets here in Miami. Um, and it, it gave a nice, almost purple, pink color to it. And it, it allowed it to have some floral elements as well, which paired perfectly with the St. Germain. Um, we called it the white tulip. And we also had a little bit of grenadine as, as well to um, help the, the, flavor, the color and the flavor. Um, but yeah, you can always add any type of edible garnish on top of a cocktail to really make it aesthetically pleasing. Um, the violets are great. You could also use um, butterfly pea flower that gives cocktails a really great blue purple color, um, as well as a little bit of like herbaceousness. And then of course, any herbs that you can find um, really complement the cocktail, both you know how it looks as well as for the flavor. One of the things that I think would be really wonderful, I'm going to play with this a little bit with a couple of bottles of St. Germain I have uh, as we come into the spring and summer season is to go out to the local farms early and look for some peach blossoms and some pear blossoms and then pick the honeysuckle out of my backyard, all flavors which are very common in St. Germain and see about blending them into cocktails and doing that. That, that sounds superb. Um, yes, St. Germain is actually made with hand-picked elderflowers every year in late spring. Um, so we don't cultivate them. We don't grow them. We, out, we go out and we, we harvest them um, naturally. So I definitely encourage having that kind of foraging mentality of creating cocktails and going out and seeing what you have in your local communities and in your backyard and incorporating those into cocktails as well because you'd really be surprised at what you can come up with. So it's a lot of fun, too. Now you're saying that you go out and hand pick it and cultivate it. Do you does do you or Saint Germain's um actually like make that into an event where it incorporates the community so like people who who love the liqueur can come out and help, you know, pick what they're going to be drinking later on? We do. We we call it our annual harvest. Um, typically, we'll have a PR come out and do it. Um, I personally haven't had the opportunity yet. This was supposed to be my year, but fingers are crossed with COVID and everything. I doubt it'll happen. Maybe next year. Um, but yes, we have a we have a team of highly skilled pickers um, that go out and. We actually have, uh, when the flowers are picked, they die within like 30 minutes. So it's a race against the clock. So we'll actually bring our dynamic maceration facility right there on site. Um, so as they get picked by, by and like kind of combed through and make sure they're, they're the best, creamiest white flowers. Um, because And we will also start in the very early morning because that's when the flowers will first open and bloom. That's when they're the most fragrant. And so that will, then we'll basically take those flowers put them into the dynamic maceration facility, which is a, a kind of a fancy way to say like a tea. So we'll put them in warm water. It will extract all of the delicious flowers of the elderflower or the flavor of the elderflower rather. Uh, and then from that, we'll add only five, four other things. So we have water, elderflowers, uh, refined beet sugar, Uda Vida Vin, which is water from life through wine, which is created specifically for St. Germain, and a neutral grain spirit, um, which fortifies and keeps it all um, good and wonderful. So we don't add any stabilizers, no preservatives, nothing like that. And it's all done right. We start in the foothills of the French Alps and we go all across Europe and we continue that and we get enough flowers for the whole year. So it's, it's a really cool production that we have. That looks, that, that looks, that sounds like it would be a lot of fun, like to actually like go along and help out. And, you know, from a photographer's standpoint, I would love to take photos of that, you know, happening, uh, especially yeah. in the Alps. <laughs> Yes. 
For our listeners, if you're not familiar with St. Germain, it has this absolutely beautiful golden color. And that golden color actually comes from the pollen of the flowers. There's nothing added to give it any color. There's no additives, as you mentioned, you know, added to it. But the, the color is just a rich golden tone from the pollen of the flowers. And it says a lot about the quality of the product. Yes, that's actually absolutely correct. Um Nothing's added to it, and it will, um, if you open it, it will oxidize over time. I actually have a bottle from the first year of our harvest in 2007, and because we don't use stabilizers or preservatives, it will change color. Um, However, it it doesn't go bad because it is, you know, like I said, fortified with the neutral green spirit. Um, If anything, it gets a little bit richer in flavor, almost like a sherry. It's a little bit nuttier. Um, But the, the bottle that I have from 2007 that's unopened is almost like dark brown chocolate color. So it's really interesting. So every bottle you can see um, on the front label down at the bottom, it's, it's time stamped with the year of our harvest. So if you ever find an older bottle, hang on to it or maybe send it my way because I'm, I'm trying to get a collection going from every year of harvest. So that's a good it's, thing to look out for. So when you mention every year of harvest, if I'm correct, you began in 2007. So you're relatively yeah. a, a young product. Yes, we are. We uh, we started, it was created by Rob Cooper. He got the idea. He's a third generation distiller. Um, he's no longer with us, rest in peace. But he, he came up with the idea um, in the early 2000s, and he worked with the world's best bartenders to come up with the same recipe that we have today. Um, it was created in 2000. The, the recipe we have is was created in 2005. So the company launched in 2007, and then in 2013 we were acquisition by Bacardi. So we're on a prestigious portfolio along with them and all their other wonderful brands. Now I actually had the um, the benefit of knowing one of your other reps, and so off of off of that, I I thought one of the in, more interesting things is you guys enter a cocktail like almost a cocktail competition every single year. Um, so do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, sure. I think you're talking about our wonderful Beth. I miss her. I hope she's doing great. Um, so, yes, last year we did a cocktail competition. Um, I believe it was our first year doing it uh, where we had bartenders come up with wonderful spring cocktails. Um, and then they, the winner actually got to go to harvest, which I was mentioning before. This year, like I said, uh, because of COVID, things have been a little bit delayed and pushed back. So I don't think that we're going to be doing it this year. But I really hope that we can start up that competition and get some people all over to France next year. Amaris just kicked me under the table and said, when do we begin working on it? Because <laughs> <laughs> I would love to join you you with uh, picking. Can you tell us a little that bit about... I'm sorry. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the name itself? I, I love food history and beverage history, so I, I love where the name came from and what it's all about. Absolutely. So Rob Cooper, um, he he fell in love with um, Paris and with Saint Germain. He really wanted to embody the Parisian lifestyle of like the 1920s and the Art Deco typography and everything you'll see on the bottle. So um, there's a couple of things. Uh, one is the Saint Germain des Prés. Um, de Press, I don't know, in, in France. Um, it's a beautiful little area in, in Paris, um, and there's a little chapel, and on either side, there's elderflower trees. So that's one of uh, the historical references that we that we have. Um, but yeah, I, I think I think a lot of it's just like that Parisian vibe, that that Art Deco, uh, like 
Parisian lifestyle in a bottle. Well, I spend my days working for a small Catholic college and the order of the nuns is the Sisters of St. Joseph who originated in France. So when I first came onto the campus, I opened up the storeroom and we had bottle after bottle after bottle of St. Germain (laughs) that nobody prior to me really knew what to do with it. So I absolutely love playing around and experimenting and it becomes the specialty cocktail for any of the college events now because I can turn them on and they have that link back to France. And they, when I told them the history and we got into it a little bit, they absolutely just went wild. That's amazing. I love to hear it. And uh, I have to say the way that I was introduced to um, St. Germain is actually through one of the events that I had covered. And I, I basically just fell in love with it because I was like, oh, what is in this, you know, cocktail? And, you know, that's that's what started my love of it. And then eventually I ran into Beth and um, she just so happened to be one of your reps at the time. So it kind of solidified it further. Um, now. Where can we find St. Germain online? Is it all over the place? Um, where can our listeners actually like find recipes for, from all of you? Uh, that's a great, great question. So we can, you can typically find recipes all over online. We have a ton on our website. And then in order to buy the, the St. Germain itself, you can buy it at typically most of like any uh, liquor store, Total Wine, Drizzly, I know offers it. Um, I don't know if that's something you have up there in Philly, but um, pretty much anywhere you, where you would buy your your regular stash of liquor or liqueurs, you can you can find a bottle of Saint Germain. Thank you. And where would we be able to find you all? What social media are you on? So um, I work for both Saint Germain and Noily Pratt, uh, which is a, a vermouth that we have um, for Bacardi as well. And my name is uh, Lane. I go by my last name is Lane. So on Instagram, it's Saint Germain drinks Noily Pratt, but it's just hyphen with just the NP. So Saint Germain drinks NP on Instagram. I'm located down here in Miami. Uh, so if you're ever down in the Sunshine State, uh, check me out. I'll probably be at one of our local bars enjoy a Saint Germain thrift or maybe a Parisian daiquiri. Who knows? I would love to visit you, especially in the that nice warm climate. <laughs> um, so thank you for joining us, Courtney. And we will look for you and we will look for St. Germain. And I am cheersing to you once again. Jean is haggling me for another <laughs> cocktail over there. Um, and you can find us on Dining in a Dime. Thank you so much. It's been wonderful talking with you guys today. Sante. Sante. Okay, Okay, let's go to break. When we come back, plant-based foods. You can find the Dining on a Dime podcast on social media. On Facebook, Dining on a Dime, the number one. On Twitter, at Dining on a Dime, the number one. And on Instagram, KJW1972. Please subscribe to our show. We are available on all podcast platforms, including iHeartRadio and Spotify. Okay, we are back. We want to welcome our listeners around the world. Plant-based diets are the hot one of the hottest trends going today. That is not a vegetarian diet. This is a plant-based diet. Vegetarian and plant-based are two different things. 
Vegetarians have a lot of different rules for their diet. Plant-based is just basically uh, focusing on plant-based products. Let's give a couple fun facts. Ben Franklin actually introduced tofu to America. Did you do, did you know that, Amherst? How did he find out? I don't know. I would love to know. But Ben Franklin is the person that actually brought tofu to America. Uh, let's get our experts involved in this plant-based diet uh, discussion. Amherst, I believe you had told me before I that used to, you used to be... A vegetarian. I used to be a vegetarian for 10 years, but this is before they created like the Beyond Meat, you know, f- like fantastic fabulous like trend um this is you know where tofu came into play and i ate a lot of pasta because um at the time you know i didn't have that information that that's a brilliant point amherst because one of the facts i found out is that a lot of people automatically assume that plant-based and vegetarian will make you lose weight because of pasta because of butter etc or whatever well i wouldn't necessarily well pasta mainly (laughs) There, they, they, it, it actually does not. No, actually, it does the exact opposite because yes. of the pasta. Um, when you're ingesting mostly carbs, you you obviously you're not you know burning it off. It's it's it, carbs are something that your body kind of clings to. So you know, yes, you can burn it off if you are eating a balanced di- diet, but. Um, as a vegetarian, a former vegetarian, I uh, gained a lot of weight because I didn't know how to balance that diet. And that's one of the big things about plant-based diets is knowing how to balance your proteins with your other nutrients. And we're going to get our chef involved in a second, but I just want to let people know that they did a big survey. They surveyed a lot of people. And according to that survey, people who eat it, uh, who eat a plant-based diet actually do not prefer the imitation meats, the uh, impossible burgers, uh, etc. They actually like whole grain. Or, I'm sorry. They like whole leaf foods like broccoli, uh, spinach. That is their go-to. I just had a wonderful conversation yesterday with someone that eats plant-based. And that is exactly what they said. They said the misconception is that people grab for impossible burgers, uh, you know, the, the, the imitation meats. And that is not true. Most of them actually prefer uh, the greens and the broccolis, etc. Well, then you you might be getting into like the macro diet, right? Um, where the heart, like I'm going to call it, the hardcore vegans um, go go into like things that are you know farm to table, like things that are are grown in that season. Um, and so I, I knew several people who went, were into the macro diets and there are certain restaurants that cater to that. Uh, there is one place that's in Philadelphia that's off of, um, Bainbridge street and it's a grocery store, but in that grocery store, it has a, you know, almost a working restaurant. Gene's smiling across the way. So he's a chef (laughs) cook for the Pope. So I'm sure he knows about it. Um, but they, they always, they had a lot of macro um, food in, inside that restaurant, well, grocery store. Chef, let's get your input. Plant-based eating, what is your thoughts? So a couple things about plant-based eating. Uh, one is that they require a lot of planning. Yes. You have to think about your meals in order to get enough protein, enough calcium, enough iron, and enough B12. And B12 is a real important one. So you really have to think about that. And there are some very simple things that you can do. Um, You can add in some certain types of 
greens or some legumes or some other, you know, nuts and things like that that help a lot. Uh, spirulina is like the new superfood, which if you're not familiar with spirulina, it is a blue or green algae. But one of the things about it is it's extremely high in protein. It's very high in iron. It's extremely high in B vitamins, though not B12. And it's very high in manganese, all things that you struggle to get in a lot of plant-based diets. So it's a great supplement. Plant-based diets today for me, the dietary phrase is a flexitarian. So somebody who will go with plant-based foods the majority of their meals, but they'll incorporate a little bit, usually white meats, a little bit of fish, some dairy, some eggs, things like that. And again, it's really just about, you know, thinking ahead where you're going to get these nutrients from, how you're going to get them, and looking at them. Like tofu has you know, a good deal of protein in it, but nothing compared to peanuts. Yes. You like peanuts as a snack. I mean, peanuts as a snack, is you know, for a half cup, it's 20.5 grams of protein. That's a lot of protein. That's way more. That's double what tofu is. And I actually have a stat real quick. 77% of vegans that they interviewed uh, said that their first choice was leafy green. So there's a percentage with what I said earlier. Yeah. Go ahead, Amber. Um, I was going to say, I actually, as far as nuts are concerned to uh, incorporate that type of protein, I love cashews. Um, and in fact, you know, obviously people who have allergies to dairy can, you know, get like a cashew milk or whatnot. But for me, I just love grabbing like a handful of uh, cashews. And if I remember correctly, the serving size for that is about 16 cashews um, per per serving. So but that is a huge benefit of protein as well. Um, and so Jean, who is our resident historian and, and chef. chef who has tons of knowledge about foods, you know, I'm sure you can back me up on that. Absolutely. The nuts become a very important part of your diet. You know, you have to get those supplements in there. If you are looking at other types of plant-based foods or the meat substitutes, you know, do your research into what there are. Impossible foods, the Impossible Burger, get right. it at Burger King, get it at Wawa, get a lot of places. Great marketing, good product, nothing against it. You know, they're in uh, 20,000 restaurants, you know, 9,000 grocery stores. But there's a, pro there's a product out there called SunFed. SunFed is a very clean, minimal product. It's gluten-free, soy-free, palm oil-free, preservative-free, cholesterol-free, antibiotic-free, hormone-free, GMO-free, dairy-free. And it produces like a chunky meat-like mouthfeel that you can add and it's extremely, extremely high in protein. It's a wonderful product. And it's kind of like chicken or any other white meat. It's just going to absorb whatever you put it in. I've never actually heard of SunFed. So where, <laughs> where do you find that? You can get SunFed at Whole Foods is the last time I saw it. Um, you do a little research online. You can find it. It's a, you know, it's a smaller company, but really a much, you know, more focused product than what they're putting into it. Good. And plant-based diets also cut greenhouse gas emissions. Uh, there's a lot of great things environmentally that eating that kind of diet does benefit. We have one minute. Uh, <laughs> so I just want to get two more facts in. 
Uh, it helps prevent species dis- extinction, obviously, because you're no longer eating animals. Legumes, nuts, and seeds are plant sources of protein. I think the myth that I found out that the, there is a myth that you're not getting enough protein with a plant-based diet, actually it has been proven to be false. You can, as long as you're balancing your diet out. One minute, Chef, and let's give our final thoughts on uh, plant-based diets. So one of the things that I would suggest people look out for is see if they can find is something called a microprotein, an MYCO protein. It is a fungus-based protein. So it's a little bit different. There is actually a product out there called corn, Q-U-O-R-N, that is made this way. And they use them as chicken nuggets, cutlets, things like that. The only problem with that is if you have mushroom allergies, you probably should pay attention and avoid that. Amaris, final thoughts, and then give your tags, and we'll go okay. around the table. So one final thought is, you know, another popular a popular vegetarian brand would be Mo- Morningstar. Um, I definitely re- relied on that <laughs> when I was a vegetarian. <laughs> um, and it has delicious alternatives to meat-based diets. Nice. Um, now, the other thing that I would like to mention is that you can do a lot with walnuts. Um, grind up walnuts, you can turn it into like a, a taco. Um, I've done it before. It tastes absolutely delicious. And um, other than that, you know, just experiment. And you can find me, um, just for anybody who's wondering, on all social media platforms under either A-R-P-O-L-L-O-C-K-U-S or my full name, Amaris Pollock. And she's a food photojournalist. Chef? You can find me at Gene Blum or IBFoodie2 across social media. And I was laughing at Amaris's Morningstar Farms. I spent three years touring the country doing interactive events for Morningstar Farms. I absolutely love their products. That is awesome. And Dining on a Dime, the number one on all social media platforms. Philly Restaurant Reviews with an S.com has 600 restaurant reviews with photos. And it also has 118 of our past shows. Thank you, everyone. We have a huge celebrity guest next week. We'll see you next week. You can find Dining on a Dime every Friday at 1 p.m. on WMLD radio app and on air at 103.7 FM in New York, the voice of the Hudson Valley.